Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Jesus, the King of Kings. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Arthur was the son of King Uther Pendragon. His life was threatened in his infancy, and so he was hidden away in secrecy for his own protection. But as a young lad, he traveled to compete in a tournament. On the way there, realized he had forgotten his sword and soon discovered a sword piercing an anvil and locked in a stone with an inscription that said, Whosoever pulleth this sword from this stone and anvil is the rightful king of England. And you know the story. He pulled the sword from the stone and anvil, marking him as the ruler of the realm. Arthur, with the aid of his magical sword, Excalibur would slay the dragons that destroyed villages with their fiery breath. He would end the Saxon invasion that threatened the realm and he was a wise and just ruler. When the lords of the kingdom began to dispute who would have second place in the kingdom, Arthur in his wisdom actually replaced the rectangular table with its different statuses with a round table, marking all of the lords as having an equal voice in the decisions of the royal household. He was Britain's ideal king. There's only one problem with Arthur, and that is although these stories are dearly loved by the British people, no one has ever succeeded in demonstrating that this Arthur actually ever lived. It appears that Arthur is merely the stuff of legend, the figment of a romantic imagination prompted by people who long for that ideal ruler that they never seem to have. Sound familiar? We long for an ideal ruler, don't we? Back in 2019, there were so many Americans who believed that if we could just have a new ruler, who could better control his temper, who didn't tweet quite as often, and, and that kind of thing, it would fix all of our nation's problems. Well, that's not working out very well for us, is it? I don't think so. Now we're going to set our hopes on the next ruler that we might elect a little over a year away. 
And we think that that's the person who's going to fix all of our problems. But let me just tell you in advance, they won't. Our leaders will always fail us. They can never be perfect. They will always disappoint us. They are never capable of exercising the leadership that we really, really need. Why? Because the ideal king is not a human king. The ideal king is a divine king. And God, through the prophet Samuel, warned the children of Israel of this in Old Testament times, that if they rejected his divine rule, they would live to regret it. None of their human leaders would ever live up to their expectations. The only ideal king will be a divine king who will reestablish God's kingship over all creation. And one of the main purposes of Matthew's gospel is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is that ideal king. He is the one who came to fulfill God's covenant with David so that one of David's descendants would sit on David's throne and reign over his people with righteousness and justice forever and ever and ever. You'll remember that the very first verse of this gospel described Jesus as son of David, which meant he is that promised descendant of David who will fulfill the Davidic covenant, who will be the ideal and eternal king of God's people. We saw that reiterated in the gematria, in the genealogy. Remember the three sets of 14 generations? And remember the 14 is the number of King David and the Davidic Messiah? We saw it in the visit of the Magi to Jerusalem where they said, where is the born king of the Jews? The one who is king by birthright that the prophets spoke of in times of old. We saw it when Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfilled a theme of the prophets by settling in Nazareth and being called a Nazarene. Remember, that's branch place and branch person, indicating that Jesus is the great messianic branch, the promised king on whose God's spirit will rest, who will reign with righteousness and justice forever. And now Matthew returns to that theme of Jesus' identity as the ideal king. He mentions some of the qualifications of our king. He mentions some of the benefits or promises that will be delivered by this king. And he describes to us the subjects of this coming king. First of all, the qualifications of our king. Jesus is qualified to be the king of God's people because he is greater and more powerful than any mere human king. Matthew begins in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, unfortunately, most English readers interpret the word withdrew to indicate that Jesus is trying to escape and evade the threat of harm from Herod Antipas who had arrested John the Baptist. You'll remember that John the Baptist had preached against 
the illicit marriage of Herod with Herodias, his brother's wife, it would ultimately lead not just to the imprisonment, to the martyrdom by beheading of John the Baptist. So we assume that when Jesus hears about John's arrest, he hits the trail and he runs from danger. No. If we know our ancient history, we will recall that according to Luke 3, 1, Herod Antipas was actually the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Herod had no authority over Judea, where the Lord Jesus had been baptized and where he had experienced his 40 days of wilderness temptation. He had authority over Galilee. So the Lord Jesus is not moving from the danger zone to the safety zone. He is moving from the safety zone to the danger zone. After hearing that John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod Antipas, he marches right into the heart of Herod's territory. Why? Because he had no fear of this mere human king. Scribes and Pharisees will warn Jesus of Herod in Luke 13, 31 through 33. They urge him to escape from Galilee, not Judea, Galilee, because they think that Herod will kill him. And Christ replies by refusing to leave Galilee and return to the safety zone in Judea and describing Herod as that old fox. That was not a flattering remark. But Christ can say it boldly because he recognizes that he has greater authority and greater power than any mere human king. Psalm 89, a great messianic prophecy, described the coming Messiah as, quote, God's firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. And Jesus recognizes he exercises far greater authority than Herod Antipas will ever possess because he is not merely king and Lord. He is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. He's not only greater than any human king, he's qualified for kingship because his rule was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. In verses 15 and 16, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 9, 1. And this is an example of what scholars refer to as metalepsis. And what's meant by that term is that when the New Testament writers cite an Old Testament verse, they're actually pointing not to that single verse alone, but to the broader Old Testament context as well. In other words, when Matthew cites Isaiah 9-1, he intends to refer to the entirety of this messianic prophecy and describe Jesus as the fulfillment of it. And think about that prophecy for a moment. Isaiah wrote, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. For he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with righteousness and justice from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus is qualified to be the king of God's people because he is this child that is born, this son that is given in Isaiah chapter 9. And that, of course, refers back to the child who is born, the son who is given in Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin born Emmanuel. By the circumstances of his birth, Jesus has demonstrated that he is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting father. He is prince of peace. And thus, he is that heir to David's throne who will reign over God's people forever and ever without end who will liberate God's people from their slavery, who will bring them peace and enormous joy. You know that when political candidates are running for office, one of their strategies is to seek good endorsements from people who are widely respected by voters, impressive people who will support their candidacy. But the Lord Jesus has the very best of endorsements when it comes to his rule and reign. For he is endorsed not merely by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, but by the very God who inspired the prophet to write these powerful words. So it is clear that Jesus Christ is God's chosen king. And make no mistake, kings were not mere figureheads in the ancient world as they often are today. They wielded absolute and total authority over their subjects. Their subjects bowed in their presence. Their subjects fell at their feet in veneration. And their subjects deeply revered them, spoke their names only with respect, and did their best to obey every single command of the king. In the same way, if Jesus, God's chosen king, is to be our 
king, then we must fall in his feet in absolute submission. We must regard his name as holy and speak it only with deep reverence and respect. And we must yield our lives to his control and seek to obey his every command. We must recognize that Jesus is king over our families. Jesus is king over our finances. Jesus is king over our moral decisions. Because if Jesus is not king of all, he is not king at all. We can't pretend that Jesus Christ is our king and then carve out some piece of our life but say, oh no, but I'm going to be in charge of that. When we surrender to Jesus' kingship, we surrender all. After describing the qualifications of our king, Matthew goes on to describe some of the benefits that our king will offer to his subjects. Every voter who is selecting a leader wants to know what that candidate can do for him or her and for the nation, right? So when we vote in about a year, we're going to want to know that the next candidate can rein in government spending. We're going to want to know that he can deal with corruption in government. We'll want to know that he can bring down the price that we pay at the gas pump. We'll want to know that he can display enough military might to keep China and Russia at bay. We'll want to know that he can restore law and order and so forth. We want to know what that ruler is going to do to benefit us and the nation. And Matthew, in his quotation of the Isaiah 9 prophecy, spells out for us three powerful promises that the Messiah will fulfill when he becomes the king of our lives. First of all, our king will reveal God's truth to his people. The Isaiah 9 prophecy describes the coming Messiah as the light. Now, ordinarily, I would argue that metaphors like light in this case have a very distinct and specific meaning. But in this case, I think the metaphor is actually polyvalent. That is, there are a number of different promises that are wrapped into this metaphor. Why? Because the preceding context has described darkness in several different ways. And by now describing Jesus as the light, he's saying that Jesus is the answer to all of those expressions of darkness. Consequently, Jesus as the light symbolizes divine revelation, reconciliation, and rejoicing. Revelation, reconciliation, and rejoicing. First of all, as the light, Jesus is God's glorious cure for the darkness of spiritual ignorance and deception. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and following, you'll find that darkness there initially represents spiritual 
confusion and ignorance. Isaiah explains that the people of the day have turned to mediums and to spiritists to try to understand the reasons for their plight and suffering. They think that the leaders of the occult have the answers to their dilemmas. When they should have been turning to what Isaiah calls God's law and the testimonies for their answers. And Isaiah explains that the reason that the people turn to these spiritists and leaders of the occult is because, quote, they have no dawn. D-A-W-N. They're characterized by darkness. They don't have spiritual enlightenment. And so in Isaiah 9, when the prophet explains that the Messiah will be the glorious light, he's saying that Jesus is the light that will disperse all of this spiritual confusion and deception. He will spiritually enlighten God's people. He will replace the devil's lies with God's truth. He will reveal God to the people. People all around us are looking to those who have no dawn for answers. They're thinking that the answers must lie in the next horoscope that they read in the daily news. They're, they're thinking that the answers must lie in the next best-selling self-help book. They're thinking that the answers must lie in the rantings of some health and wealth tele-evangelist who only tells people what they want to hear and what they don't realize is all they're doing is peering into the darkness and groping like the blind because only Jesus is the light that can reveal the truth they so desperately need. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. As the light, not only does Jesus reveal God's truth to his people, he reconciles sinners to God. In Isaiah 8, 22, the darkness represents estrangement, alienation, exile from God. The prophet said that those who curse God because of their suffering will be driven away into darkness. And the darkness there represents banishment from God's great glory. The unrepentant sinner is distanced from God, alienated from God, estranged from God. And when the prophet now says in chapter 9 that the Messiah is the light that signs show brightly, he's saying that through Jesus the Messiah, those who are alienated from God have been reconciled to God. Through Jesus, those who were banished from God's presence have now been brought back. Or to say it in the words of the Apostle Paul, those who were far away have now been brought near to God. And the idea is that the Messiah is the mediator who restores the sinner's broken relationship with God so that those who were God's enemies become his children and his friends. 
Now, one of the great religious myths that circulates in our culture today is the old liberal doctrine of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of humanity. And the idea is that the human race is just one great, big, happy, spiritual family, and God is the father of us all. I don't know. Colossians 1 is clear that the unrepentant sinner is not the friend of God or the child of God, but is actually the enemy of God. And they have declared their enmity against God by their constant rebellion against His authority and His commandments. But although we are not all children of the light, we can become children of the light. Although those who have lived in rebellion against God are God's enemies, through the reconciliation that only Jesus can provide, those who were God's enemies may become His children and His friends. Those who are driven away into the darkness of alienation from God can be brought near to Him through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And not only does our great King reveal spiritual truth, reconcile sinners to the Holy God as the light, He also replaces our misery with indescribable joy. In Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, the darkness represents gloom, distress, anguish. In other words, the sorrow, sadness, and emptiness that characterizes those who are lost and alienated from God. When Isaiah says that Jesus is the light, that chases away the gloom, that pierces the darkness. He's saying He's the one that causes our anguish to flee and replaces our sorrow with joy. Isaiah 9.3 says it very clearly, You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Say, do you want to know the joy that the coming Messiah brings? And think about how people dance up and down when they've just completed the harvest and they've realized that they've got plenty of food to eat for the next entire year. And they won't have to struggle with hunger and famine like people in the ancient world so often did. They would sing and dance and celebrate such an abundant harvest. He says, you want to know the joy that the Messiah brings? Then think about what happens when an ancient army conquers another army and they go into the now abandoned enemy camp and find vast treasures there that will make them wealthy for the rest of their lives. Oh, the singing and dancing and the prophets saying, that's the kind of joy that Messiah brings. He brings this great joy by liberating people from their slavery to sin, from the oppression of evil. It is so sad to watch sad people seek happiness in our culture today in all the wrong places. They desperately search for something or someone that will give their lives meaning and joy. And they think it might come from having more stuff. 
They think it might come from the relationship with just the right person. They think that it might come from fame and popularity. They think it might come from entertainment or drug abuse. But like the writer of Ecclesiastes, they soon discover that it is all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. And these worldly things can never deliver on the joy that they have promised. I read in the news just this morning the sad, sad report from the CDC that this last year, 2022, there were more Americans who committed suicide than ever before in a single year in our entire history. Almost 50,000 people who came to the end of their rope and believed that there was no hope, that they had no future but misery, and they preferred death to life. Oh, how I wish people knew the light that Jesus brings. How I wish people knew the joy that can be ours when we experience forgiveness and salvation and transformation by his sacrifice and power. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And Jesus can grant to us an abundant life that this world never, ever will. So any who are sad and distressed, any who feel hopeless, I urge you to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and King, and you will find yourself surprised by abundant joy. Not a joy that comes from the pleasant circumstances of this earthly life, but a joy that can come only through the cross of Jesus Christ. After describing for us the qualifications of our King, the promises and benefits of our King, finally Matthew describes to us the subjects of our King. He tells us in verse 13 that Jesus, who had resided with the Holy Family throughout his childhood and youth, and early adulthood in Nazareth, now relocated to Capernaum as his ministry headquarters. And I'm convinced that that was a very strategic decision. Nazareth was a tiny, obscure little village. Although Josephus, that first century Jewish writer, describes for us scores of little villages in Galilee, there's one he never mentions, and it's Nazareth because it was such a tiny little place. Even those who had lived in Galilee all their life might never have heard of it. But as Jesus begins his ministry, he moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum was a much larger city. Fishing town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was so large that it had its own tax collection station. It had a garrison of at least 100 Roman soldiers. And its location was particularly strategic for a couple of reasons. One is, one Matthew mentions, 
Quoting Isaiah, that Capernaum was located on, quote, the way of the sea. This is the Via Maris, an ancient road that ran from Damascus, Sirius, all the way through Palestine down to Caesarea Maritima on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And because that was such a strategic trade route, in Jesus' day, it had been paved by the Romans. A paved stone Roman road that was comparable to a modern-day interstate highway. And Gentile caravans were constantly traveling from Damascus of Syria all the way down to Caesarea and back again. And of course, as they did, they would hear the teachings of the Lord Jesus and they would see the miracles of the Lord Jesus. So we won't be surprised in just a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew to define that word about Jesus and his ministry has spread, quote, all over Syria. In addition to that, it's located on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, which meant that Christ and his disciples had easy access by boat to many different major cities around that sea, including most importantly, the Decapolis, a league of 10 Gentile pagan cities. And both Isaiah and Matthew recognize the significance of this strategic location for Jesus' ministry headquarters. Because the prophet described Galilee, verse 15 of Matthew 4, as Galilee of the Gentiles. And this is not an exaggeration. 2 Kings 15 and 2 Kings 17 tell us that after the Jews were deported from the northern kingdom, this now empty and abandoned holy land was populated by Egyptians, Arabians, Phoenicians, and Greeks, people from all over the world. By the time of 1 Maccabees, a book written between the time of the Old and New Testament, the writer tells us that the population of Galilee was largely Gentile and largely pagan. And here's the point of all this. By locating his ministry, not just in Galilee of the Gentiles, but in Capernaum on the Via Maris, Christ is demonstrating that he came to be the Savior, not just of the people of Israel, but those who didn't have Abraham's blood in their veins, those of many other different nations and cultures and languages. Fulfilling the Daniel 7 prophecy that the Son of Man will have people of every nation, tribe, and tongue bow before him. And one of the most prominent themes of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. We saw it in Matthew 1.1 where Jesus is called not just Son of David but Son of Abraham. And just as the title Son of David means Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, Son of Abraham means that he's that promised descendant of Abraham who will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He is the promised seed that Genesis said is the one through whom, quote, all nations on earth will be blessed. All nations will receive the blessing of salvation. 
through this promised descendant of Abraham. And then you'll remember the genealogy that immediately follows. Although lots of fathers are mentioned in the genealogy, only four mothers other than Mary. And what did they all have in common? They were all known as Gentiles, reminding us again of God's inclusion of Gentiles in His redemptive plan. When we get to Matthew 2, we see that the first people to worship the Lord Jesus in His infancy are not the chief priests and elders of the people from Jerusalem and the temple, but they are instead the magi from the east, representatives of the pagan Gentile world who recognize Jesus as God's Savior and King, repent of their sins, fall at His feet, worship Him, and open their treasures and sacrifice them to this baby boy. It'll continue later in Matthew 4 when news about Jesus spreads throughout all Syria in verse 25 of chapter 4 where Jesus attracts crowds from the Decapolis, that league of ten Gentile cities on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And this theme will run all through the Gospel of Matthew until we reach those final climactic verses. And we are told that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. It's important to recognize that that great commission that urges us to carry the gospel to all nations is not some afterthought that suddenly pops into the mind of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. This was an essential element of his mission from day one. And it had been foretold by the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Isaiah 9 and like Moses in the Abrahamic covenant. But Jesus didn't just come to be the king of Israel alone. He didn't just come to rule over a tiny nation on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. He came to be the king over all the peoples of the earth. Those are his rightful subjects. And the day is coming when he will rule and reign over all. Many, because they voluntarily submit to his authority. Sadly, many others who were unrepentant and disbelieving when he breaks their backs with his rod of iron and drives them into submission far too late for them to enjoy the salvation of their souls. Now, voting ballots can be confusing things, can't they? Step behind that curtain and you've got this ballot with name after name, some of which you've, you've never even heard. And you have to make that difficult decision about which one to choose. Well, I'm happy that when it comes to who will be the king of our life, the decision is much simpler. Because there are really only two options for us to choose between. Either you will be the king of your own life or you will submit to the authority of Jesus Christ as your king. There aren't really any other options. Now, all of us have spent plenty of time on the throne of our lives. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, we should admit that our record is not too impressive. Our reign didn't lead to spiritual enlightenment. Our reign didn't lead to peace with God. Our reign didn't lead to the forgiveness of our sin, the transformation of our lives. Our reign didn't result in abundant joy. It's the darkness, the gloom, the anguish that the prophet warns about. So what I'm asking every person in this room today is to turn to the light and bow before Jesus Christ alone as King. This is the most important decision that you will ever make in your lives. In a little over a year, you will step behind a curtain in a voting booth and you will make a decision that will affect your life for at least the next four years and potentially even longer. But the decision that you face today, whether you will persist in sitting on the throne or whether you will ask Jesus Christ to occupy that throne, that decision affects not only the rest of your life, but it affects all of eternity. So I urge you, choose Christ. Back in 1851, Matthew Bridges and Godfrey Thring wrote the old hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. And one of the many stanzas summarizes the commitment that I'm calling you today. The hymn writer said, Crown Him the Lord of Lords, who over all doth reign who once on earth the incarnate word for ransomed sinners slain, now lives in realms of light where saints with angels sing their songs before him day and night, their God, Redeemer, and King. What I'm asking that you do today is trust Jesus Christ as your God, Redeemer, and King. Recognize that He is the mighty God that Isaiah 9 described in human flesh, coming to live among us, to reveal to us who God is and what He is like, and worship Him as the Son of God, God in human form. Trust Him as your Redeemer, the only one who can take enemies of God and reconcile them to God so that they become his children and his friends. The only one who died on the cross for our sins in our place so that we can be forgiven and we who were alienated and estranged can be fully reconciled and submit to him as your king. Bow before his authority and yield control over every area of your life to Him. And if that's your commitment in a few moments when we sing together, I'm going to ask you to come forward and tell me about that decision. Tell one of our church leaders so that we can tell you what the next steps are in your new Christian life. Every person in this room is making this decision today. It's not a decision that you postpone. Your decision is one in which you either say yes to Christ or you say no to Christ. There is no middle ground. Christ said, he who is not for me is against me. He who scatters not with me, gathers not with me, scatters abroad. 
You're making a decision today whether you want to or not. And my prayer is that your decision will be the one that saves you for all eternity, that reconciles you to God, and grants you the abundant joy that you cannot find any other way. Let's pray together. Father, we sing with saints and angels that Jesus is our God, Redeemer, and King. And we pray that if there's anyone listening now who does not know Jesus Christ as this, that you would move them by the power of your Spirit to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as God's Savior and King this very moment. for the salvation of their souls and for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name, amen.